Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia, and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, and we're coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. Uh, and I am your host, Pastor David Whitney, and I serve as the senior instructor at Institute on the Constitution. And my two wonderful gentlemen scholars who join me on Friday mornings are Phil Duffy, our constitutional instructor, and Mike Jeremita, who we say is our warrior in the courtroom as he defends the God-given right to keep and bear arms. And by the way, Mike has a show just before ours at 7 a.m. on Friday mornings. Mike G. in the morning, the law matters. I invite you to join uh, Mike at 7 and, and to join us here at We the People at uh, 8 o'clock. We're in the midst of a series that we're calling The Decent Dozen. That is 12 Supreme Court cases that we think uh, accurately reflect what the founders' view was in the Constitution and what their intent was that our constitutional republic would guard and protect the God-given rights of the people. And uh, we've already done a series, The Dirty Dozen, where we <laughs> selected 12 cases that, whoa, are way off the standard according to our view of uh, what uh, the founders intended for our federal government. But uh, we are now looking at a new case this morning, Near v. Minnesota, a case that took place in 1931. And uh, deals with the whole issue of the First Amendment and the question about how far does the First Amendment protect our God given liberty of speech, liberty of, or freedom of the press uh, and, and associated ideas. Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts this morning on Near v. Minnesota? The Legal Information Institute of Cornell's Law School describes Near v. Minnesota as follows Near v. Minnesota. It's a landmark Supreme Court case revolving around the First Amendment. In this case, the Supreme Court held that prior restraint on publication violated the First Amendment. This holding has a broader impact on free speech generally. In Near v. Minnesota, a Minnesota public official sued Near, who published the Saturday Press under a Minnesota state statute that allowed for temporary and permanent injunctions against those who created a public nuisance by publishing, selling, or distributing a malicious, scandalous, and defamatory newspaper. The state court held in favor of the public official and ordered the cessation of the Saturday press. The state's Supreme Court affirmed and near appealed to the United States Supreme Court. It is interesting to see how many subjective terms were used by the state of Minnesota to include public nuisance, malicious, scandalous, and defamatory. Let's use the legal definition of public nuisance at the Legal Information Institute's website to gain an insight into the challenge of using these terms. A public nuisance generally refers to any conduct that interferes with the rights of the public. The precise definition of public nuisance often varies by state and is embodied in civil and criminal statutes. For example, in California, anything which is injurious to health or is indecent or offensive to the senses or an obstruction to the free use of property so as to interfere with the comfortable enjoyment of life or property by an entire community or neighborhood or by a considerable number of persons or unlawful, unlawfully obstructs the free passage or use in the customary manner of any navigable lake or river, bay, stream, canal, or basin, or any public park, square, street, or highway. There's something wrong with the idea that the public has rights. In legal cases, the public is conceptually either a plaintiff or a defendant, 
but the public is never named. Instead, we see a governmental body representing the public identified as a party in a suit, but also the name of an individual. For example, National Federation of Independence versus Sibelius is a case in which members of the National Federation of Independent Business are represented by that organization, whereas the federal government was represented by Kathleen Sibelius as the Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Obama administration. If an abstraction, the public, does not have standing in judicial systems, then who does? Clearly, the representatives of the people and governmental organizations such as the Department of Health and Human Services. But only people have rights. The people allow government to exercise powers only, and those powers may be withdrawn if the people wish. The general definition at the Legal Information Institute really makes no sense. If we acknowledge that the definition makes no sense, let's see how the definition has been applied in the state of California. Curiously, California is able to supply the idea reasonably when its statutes talk about an obstruction to the free use of property and unlawfully obstructs the free passage or use in the customary manner of any navigable lake or river, bay, stream, canal, or basin, or any public park, square, street, or highway. But how should the state of California enforce Anything which is injurious to health. Just about everything humans do can be considered injurious to health because our understanding of what constitutes health is hardly universally accepted. And what about or is indecent or offensive to the senses? How is that measured? And is there a public consensus? Going back to an obstruction to the free use of property, we learned that California's law was not really uh, uh, protecting the individual property owner because the statute is written, or an obstruction to the free use of property so as to interfere with the comfortable enjoyment of life or property by an entire community or neighborhood or by any considerable number of persons. California law seems to ignore individual rights in favor of the collective. What does all of this mean in the big picture? Law is a set of rules created by humans to coerce other humans to do the will of those who create the law. That is justified in some situations for the good of the, of the citizenry, but the power to make laws has often been abused by those seeking special advantage over others and by those ideologues seeking to create a perfect society, recognizing that the perfect society is in the eyes of the promoter of legislation. The best written laws are those that first are consistent with the natural law and those that can be implemented equitably and easily. That means avoiding fuzzy terms such as public nuisance, malicious, scandalous, and defamatory. The Legal Information Institute mentioned a concept in this case that draws upon a fundamental tenet of law, prior restraint. According to the Institute, in First Amendment law, prior restraint is governmental action that prohibits speech or other expression before the speech happens. The idea applies more generally to all offenses. We don't throw everybody in jail because they have the potential to murder or steal. Incarceration is limited to those who are alleged to have committed the unlawful act, not to those who are thought capable of it. Let's take a look at the facts in the case. Wikipedia describes the background of the case. <clears throat> in 1927, J. M. Neer, who has been described as anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, anti-Black, and anti-Labor, began publishing the Saturday Press in Minneapolis with Howard A. Guilford, a former mayoral candidate who had been convicted of criminal libel. 
The paper claimed that Jewish Americans, uh, Jewish American organized crime was practically ruling the city along with police chief Frank W. Brunskill, whom Neer accused of corruption. Among the paper's other targets were Mayor George E. Leach, Hennepin County Attorney and future three-term Governor Floyd B. Olson, and the members of the Grand Jury of Hennepin County, who the paper claimed were either incompetent or willfully failing to investigate and prosecute known criminal activity. Notice the construction of the first paragraph. In 1927, J.M. Neer, who has been described as anti-Catholic, anti-Semitic, anti-Black, and anti-Labor, began publishing the Saturday Press in Minneapolis with Howard A. Guilford, a former mayoral candidate who had been convicted of criminal libel. This would not be admissible as evidence in a court. First, who is it that described Jay Neer in this way? It's not likely he was one of the, uh, it was one of his best friends, and was more likely someone who would like to see him taken out of business. Those are nasty labels, but how do you define them? Notice that there are no examples as evidence at the site. There's also something suspicious about the state of Minnesota not relying on libel law, but basing its plea for permanent injunction on questionable statute law. How much of Minnesota's public nuisance law differed from the Sedition Act that the John Adams administration attempted to enforce? The National Archives website describes the, the Sedition Act in this way. The Sedition Act made it a crime for American citizens to print, utter, or publish any false, scandalous, and malicious writing about the government. The Alien and Sedition Acts were never reversed. More effectively, the 1800 election allowed the citizenry to throw the rascals out, and the term of legislation was allowed to expire. So what was the case outcome? Wikipedia has this to say about the outcome of the case. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, reversed the decision of the Minnesota Supreme Court and ruled that the public nuisance law of 1925 was unconstitutional. The U.S. Supreme Court held that, except in rare cases, censorship is unconstitutional. The court held, for these reasons, we hold the statute so far as it is authorized, as it authorized the proceedings in this action to be an infringement of the liberty of the press guaranteed by the 14th Amendment, we should add that this decision rests upon the operation and effect of the statute without regard to the question of the truth of the charges contained in the particular periodical. The fact that the public officers named in, the, in this case and those associated with the charges of official dereliction may be deemed to be impeccable cannot affect the conclusion that the statute imposes an unconstitutional restraint upon publication. Notice here the reliance on the 14th Amendment. Interestingly, uh, interestingly, Wikipedia adds this comment about employing the 14th Amendment as a basis for the Supreme Court's opinion. Note that the paragraph above cites the 14th Amendment and not the First Amendment. This is because the 14th Amendment incorporates the First and makes it applicable to the states. As literally written, the First Amendment applies to Congress and the federal government, not the states. Originally, the First Amendment applied only to actions taken by Congress, since literally, Congress shall make no law. Many court decisions have historically been based upon what has been called the incorporation doctrine. The Legal Information Institute claims... The incorporation doctrine 
is a constitutional doctrine through which parts of the first 10 amendments of the United States Constitution, known as the Bill of Rights, are made applicable to the states through the due process clause of the 14th Amendment. Incorporation applies both substantively and procedurally. This is the applicable wording in Amendment 14, Section 1. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The Legal Information Institute acknowledges the controversial nature of the incorporation document uh, doctrine. <clears throat> A lot of contention surrounds whether the 14th Amendment should incorporate any substantive rights, with opinions from Supreme Court justices ranging from complete to no incorporation. See substantive due process. Rather than find that the due process clause incorporates all of the Bill of Rights, the Supreme Court supported selectively incorporating rights that the court finds as essential to due process. Under selective incorporation, the Supreme Court incorporated certain parts of certain amendments rather than incorporating an entire amendment at once. Now, we have a, a case locally here uh, called the Free Thought Society of Greater Philadelphia versus Chester County. And this is an example of how the incorporation doctrine has been abused. Fine law describes the background of this case. In 1920, following a public dedication ceremony with both religious and secular overtones, the Chester County commissioners accepted a bronze plaque displaying a Protestant version of the Ten Commandments replacement on the courthouse facade from a group of local citizens who represented an organization known as the Religious Education Council. The plaque was affixed near what was then the entrance to the courthouse. The plaintiffs contend that the plaque's placement is in violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment because the Religious Education Council donated the plaque and the county accepted it for religious purposes and because the effect of the plaque is to cause a reasonable observer to believe that the county is endorsing religion. The case should have been straightforward according to First Amendment principles. Congress had nothing to do with erecting the plaque, but the plaintiffs asserted that the incorporation document based upon the 14th Amendment restated the First Amendment to apply to the states as well. That seemed like a good idea at the time because Americans generally believe that freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition have always been a part of our natural rights. Both Madison and Hamilton had initially argued that it was not necessary to specify these in the Constitution. Under pressure from anti-federalists, the Federalists had agreed to create a Bill of Rights in the first session of Congress. Madison took the initiative in drafting these, adding the Ninth Amendment, which is, according to the Legal Information Institute, the Ninth Amendment was James Madison's attempt to ensure that the Bill of Rights was not seen as granting to the people of the United States only the specific rights it addressed. In recent years, some have interpreted it as affirming the existence of such unenumerated rights outside those expressly protected by the Bill of Rights. The Legal Information Institute has this comment about the purpose of the Tenth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment confirms the understanding of the people at the time the Constitution was adopted, that the power is not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution, are reserved to the states respect respectively, or to the people. The 14th Amendment, Section 1, 
does not nullify, render meaningless, or subject the First Amendment to judicial interpretation. It is meant to be taken as literally as Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, which prohibits Congress from exercising specific powers. The effect of the doctrine of incorporation, which is nowhere found in the Constitution or its amendments, is to allow the federal branch to overrule the will of the people and substitute the interpretation of the federal judiciary. Let's take a look at the concept of hate speech, which is kind of related to all of this. The American Library Association website has this to say about hate speech. In the United States, hate speech is protected by the First Amendment. Courts extend this protection on the grounds that the First Amendment requires the government to strictly protect robust debate on matters of public concern, even when such debate devolves into distasteful, offensive, or hateful speech that causes others to feel grief, anger, or fear. The Supreme Court's decision in Snyder v. Phelps provides an example of this legal reasoning. Under current First Amendment jurisprudence, hate speech can only be criminalized when it directly incites imminent criminal activity or consists of threats of violence targeted against a person or group. This principle has held up so far, but the problem is that the incorporation document constantly, uh, I'm sorry, incorporation doctrine constantly places free speech cases under the interpretation of the federal judiciary, which has demonstrated a willingness to ignore constitutional principles. If the 14th Amendment, Section 1, can be stretched to disarm the First Amendment, how long will it be before a federal judiciary committed to centralized government control will effectively reverse direction on criticizing the government? Even John Adams, once installed in the presidency, supported that type of legislation. How long before the federal judiciary reverses its position on hate speech, allowing so-called hate speech to be weaponized against the advocates of limited government? For these reasons, Near versus Minnesota deserves a rating of a decent but not great Supreme Court opinion. Oh, thank you, Phil. And you're absolutely right. It's a good thing we didn't title this uh, series The Perfect Supreme Court Cases <laughs> because, yes, there's a decent uh, outcome of this case. But I agree with you. There's a problem in relying on the 14th Amendment rather than looking to the First Amendment because the principles here are clearly the freedom of the press and and freedom of speech. And, and our founders clearly said that the general principle – is that the speech or press, which is a, uh, a printed version of that, uh, th that those uh, freedoms are guaranteed to be protected by our uh, federal constitution. And, and indeed, most state constitutions have a very similar uh, provision protecting freedom of speech and freedom of the press. It's interesting to note, however, that they weren't saying that all speech was therefore permissible. All of the states, when they were ratifying the First Amendment, had uh, uh, laws that prohibited blasphemy, that is cursing and, and taking the name of the Lord God in vain, uh, obscenity, and uh, clearly the courts have shown in their interpretation of and application of the First Amendment that speech presenting clear and present danger uh, to uh, individual security, such as we think of, you know, yelling fire in a crowded theater when there is no fire and people being endangered by that uh, statement or 
speech soliciting crime or violence, you know. So if you go to hire a hitman and turns out the hitman you're trying to hire is actually an FBI agent and and he uh, you know brings you into justice for having criminally tried to hire him to kill someone and that's that's not protected speech just as uh, most courts have ruled that fighting words that is words known to incite violence that's not protected nor is obscenity nor is defamation of the character of another person. So those freedom of the speech principles also apply to freedom of the press, that the press cannot be used to solicit crime uh, or violence. So it's interesting in this case, near V, Minnesota, you know, the whole idea of a public nuisance, the whole idea that you're denigrating other people uh, and you're being unpleasant and uh, somebody is getting offended by your speech. Well, think about the uh, the move today to actually do the same that the attempt near the Minnesota accomplished at the state level, but the Supreme Court overturned that. That is to say, if someone is offended by your speech today, you're told you've committed uh, almost a crime. And in some cases, you know, you're blamed with committing a crime because somebody got offended by your speech. How dare you say something that offended or hurt someone's feelings? You know, you might find that uh, your speech melted a snowflake or something like that. <laughs> That's not our founder's view at all. Freedom of speech is uh, a freedom that is protected. Freedom of the press is protected. Of course, along with that comes the responsibility for if you do something like incite violence or, uh, you know, or call for a crime to be committed, that you can be held accountable for uh, those actions using your, your freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And so we, we see the principle here. The court got it correctly that uh, the Supreme Court of Minnesota was wrong in saying that uh, uh, Neer could be censored and his paper could be shut down effectively because uh, what he was saying was unpleasant. What he was saying was uh, what some people found offensive and they didn't uh, like the statements he was making and uh, that the censorship, the Supreme Court rightly ruled, was unconstitutional. And you're absolutely right that this is not the first time in the, in the history of America that this kind of issue has arisen. The Alien and Sedition Acts, as you rightly point out, basically said, we're going to criminalize all speech where somebody criticizes the government. And essentially, that's what Neer was doing in his publication, he was criticizing the government and saying the government uh, was wrong in a number of day ways and the government was corrupt and there was you know, this connection with the mafia and all these accusations he was making. Um, against the government were like those Alien and Sedition Acts. Now, I agree with you, Phil, that the, the strange thing to me is that why did they rely on the 14th Amendment to argue this case? Why didn't they turn to the First Amendment? And you rightly point out, they uh, say that the incorporation doctrine incorporates the First Amendment against the states. And obviously, in one sense, they have to argue that because they're arguing on the basis of the U.S. Constitution rather than the state constitution of Minnesota. And the First Amendment on its face doesn't say anything about the states. It says Congress shall not, uh, you know, in this case, uh, restrict the freedom of the press or, or the freedom of speech. It's, it's a restriction on Congress. So how do you shift from Congress to say, oh, the state legislature of Minnesota cannot pass a law that would restrict the freedom of speech or freedom of the press? Now, that incorporation doctrine, you rightly point out, has a great number of problems and there's a, a great number of debates about uh, what it's meaning. 
meaning is. And to say that the incorporation doctrine is correct is actually to reject the history of what we know following the 14th Amendment. Seven years after the 14th Amendment was ratified, and by the way, there's some question about its ratification, but we don't have time to go into that right now. But uh, for, uh, within those those 14 years later, a new amendment to the U.S. Constitution was proposed called the Blaine Amendment. Uh, by the way, seven years later, the Blaine Amendment was proposed. And the text of the Blaine Amendment, by the way, this never became part of our Constitution. It was rejected by the people. It was never ratified by the states. It never became part of our Constitution. And it read this, no state shall make any law respecting an establishment of religion. In other words, exact same wording as our First Amendment. Only change is instead of Congress, it says state. No state shall make any law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And no money raised by taxation in any state for the support of, pro of public schools or derived from any public fund, therefore, uh, nor any public lands devoted thereto shall ever be under the control of any religious sect. Nor shall any money so raised or lands so devoted be divided between religious sects or denominations. So the attempt was to say we need to keep at the state level any uh, attempt for the states to have some form of established religion. And you note the text of the First Amendment clearly says Congress cannot make any law establishing religion. And yet the state governments could and the state governments did. In fact, all 13 original states had some form of cooperation between religion and the state. Some of them had outright established churches in New England. These are primarily the, the congregational churches were the established church of, of Massachusetts and Connecticut and so on. And basically, it meant that the taxpayers were funding these churches. You'd pay your taxes and a portion of your tax would go to support that specific church. Likewise, in uh, in the South, there was in Virginia, the established church, the Anglican church and so on. So there were clearly established religions. And the First Amendment does not say ever say that the states could not establish religion because when that First Amendment was ratified, 1791, there were state established religions. In fact, if I remember correctly, I think is Connecticut was the last to disestablish. Perhaps you remember uh, doing, a, a, you know, a spelling bee, and you were asked to spell the word anti-disestablishmentarianism. <laughs> a big, long word, right? You'd like to have that word in a Scrabble game. But anti-disestablishmentarianism was the group of people opposed to the disestablishment of the state church in New England and, and in, in the southern states. They were opposed to that disestablishment because each of the states had some form of connection with religion. Some had clearly established religion. So it was not the state's that were restricted by the First Amendment. And clearly, the Blaine Amendment was attempting to do that. It was attempting to make the states in that same position vis-a-vis -vis the First Amendment, that no state shall make any law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, remember, these people who were debating this in Congress and passing this, these were the same people that had, just seven years early, ratified the, seventh, uh, the 14th Amendment. So clearly, they understood, those who actually crafted and passed the 14th Amendment, clearly understood the 14th Amendment did not incorporate the First Amendment against the states or else they never would have proposed the Blaine Amendment, an amendment that would say that the wording of the First Amendment now applies to the states. So the Blaine Amendment proves that the incorporation doctrine that is taught in every law school of the land, and Mike, I'll have you check me on this to see if you were taught the incorporation doctrine is the law of the land and that kind of thing, but it's false. It's historically false, and the Blaine Amendment proves uh, that it is false. So I find it curious that 
the Supreme Court here in 1931 is making a decision. It's the proper decision. They reached the proper conclusion, but they did it on very shaky grounds. This incorporation doctrine is not constitutional. And if you study the history, you'll find that the Blaine Amendment uh, became actually pivotal in various states of the union because the states were debating religion in, in public education, religious establishment, religious expression. And so many states actually adopted as part of their own state constitution a version of the Blaine Amendment for their state. But not every state did this. Uh, and so the original intent of the 14th Amendment was to actually incorporate the First Amendment. No, that's false. Otherwise, the Blaine Amendment would have never been considered. And by the way, it's also curious, as you pointed out, Phil, that they're kind of selective in which parts of the Bill of Rights they want to incorporate against the states. And Phil uh, and Mike, I know you'll have a, a good time with this because they never ever want to incorporate the Second Amendment against the states. It's like, well, somehow the incorporation doctrine applies to one and three and four, five, six, but it never seems to apply to the Second Amendment. Well, what's with that? What kind of hypocrisy is that to say, oh, yeah, we're going to incorporate the Bill of Rights against the states, but oh, 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 wait a minute. We've got some exceptions. We want to pick and choose what phrases and what parts. Wait a minute. That's not constitutional at all. That's giving the court system the power to pick and choose and basically the power to kind of create laws, in this case, laws that are not in the U.S. Constitution at all, and apply these laws against uh, the states. So, Micah, why don't you give us your thoughts? And I'd love to hear what uh, you, know, you were taught, if you remember what the, they were saying to you in law school about this incorporation doctrine. Thanks, Pastor Whitney. Uh, when it comes to the incorporation clause, that takes up all of a few sentences in law school. It's presented to us as it is what it is. As far as the Second Amendment goes, for most of this country's history, you're absolutely correct. Uh, when we got Heller, the states even tried to <laughs> become very anti-incorporation clause very quick. But with McDonald versus City of Chicago, that's ultimately where the Supreme Court held that the Second Amendment does, in fact, apply to the states. Uh, so that was a a good case for <laughs> us on the Second Amendment side because it holds the states accountable to whatever degree that we can. This is something that even with the Bruin case, we're seeing litigation in these states because they've tried to counteract the gains that we've made um, by imposing all sorts of other restrictions that are bound to be held unconstitutional. For example, now that they can't use justifiable need as a restriction on having a license to carry and forcing you to prove what specific reasons make it necessary for you to bear arms. Uh, what they've done is they'll issue your license, but places like New Jersey and New York have enacted all kinds of laws making basically everywhere a gun-free zone, including your own vehicle. So this is going to be litigated. I got to imagine they're all going to get struck down. But the problem is that these governments know that that's going to take time and it's going to take a whole lot of money and they're going to keep throwing banana peels down for gun owners trying to trap them up. Um, but when I hear the term prior restraint, I remember a law school professor, specifically Professor Grundy, and she said four words introducing the class to the term. She said prior restraints are bad. And when you dig into it philosophically, it's very easy to understand why prior restraints are destructive if you value free speech. And it really comes down to a chilling effect, because how could we possibly experience true freedom of speech if every time we talk or we write, we're worried about stepping on a landmine? 
Now, I know that I'm most known for my work in the Second Amendment realm, but the second big case of my career was actually a First Amendment case. I was heading up the Second Amendment department at a criminal defense firm at the beginning of my career, and one of our attorneys heard that prosecutors and judges were texting each other during criminal trials in a particular county. So one of my coworkers filed a right-to-know request, and he was trying to get a hold of the telephone records for the government-issued cell phones to see if this was true. The county turned the records over, but then one of the judges almost instantly sued our firm in civil court, asking for a court order requiring us to destroy the records and never disclose them to anybody. And because I had civil litigation experience in law school out in Oklahoma, litigating against Fortune 500 companies and government entities, I was the one tasked with representing the firm in this case. Now, thanks to Professor Grundy's class, I remembered the series of First Amendment cases. They were very fresh in my mind, including Bart Nicky versus Bopper which is a case where conversations regarding teachers' union collective bargaining negotiations were illegally intercepted and taped. Then the tapes were turned over to a third party, a radio host, who played one of the tapes. The court held that the tapes were lawfully obtained by the radio host because he didn't intercept them, and they were a matter of public concern, so disclosure was protected under the First Amendment. I made a similar argument in my case, and we ended up winning that case. Now, it's also interesting to to see other ways that uh, freedom of speech is suppressed. And one thing that I've noticed, how this can get extremely dangerous, is if you go to the Anti-Defamation League's website, they have uh, an entire section devoted to hate on display, hate symbols database. Now, if somebody reads through this stuff, a lot of it is extremely obvious. You take a look at some of the stuff and say, well, yeah, that seems uh, it's like something that I wouldn't want to be associated with. But then there are other things that can easily get somebody slid into. First of all, just about every number imaginable is included in this database. So apparently all these numbers have some kind of double meaning, some kind of separate meaning. But any of these numbers are contained in the hate database. So you got to be careful which numbers you use. Uh, they also have boots listed as in the hate database. So apparently if you wear boots, that, that could mean that you're a white supremacist as well. There are a number of different patriotic slogans and flags that we're all familiar with. And apparently those are also in the hate symbols database. And we recently saw there was a federal document that came out to um, identify domestic terrorists. And we saw the Betsy Ross flag on that and things of that nature. So we could really see how the suppression of free speech and, you know, one step removed the freedom of the press can be inhibited and really destroyed by prior restraints. Now, I once heard David Barton describe the First Amendment very well, because I think we all understand that uh, there are things you can do with the press, for example. We saw during the Trump administration how many lies were thrown out there. I think a lot of people started to get fed up and think that some of these media outlets should be held accountable. And what David Barton said was, uh, was great. He compared it to the Second Amendment. And the way he described it is that with important rights, come important responsibilities. For example, we have the right to bear arms, but we don't have the right to be stupid, negligent, or reckless with our firearms, and we certainly don't have the right to harm other people in a circumstance which isn't justified. Similarly, we have freedom of speech and freedom of the press, but with that, we don't have the right to lie about other people in order to harm them. So telling lies and harming other people, I think we could all agree is bad. The example we always hear is you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. Well, that's not exactly true because you absolutely can yell fire in a crowded theater 
if there's a fire, <laughs> because it's true. And you want to let people know if you're going in there and shouting out a lie in order to, to harm other people, then that's a different story. Well, these are just some examples, the basic thousand foot view of my opinion. Mm, thank you, Mike. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking about how this applies to things we have seen recently, uh, particularly the idea of criticizing government, which is what Nier was was doing, evidently criticizing the government of the, of the city there. And uh, we talked about the Alien and Sedition Acts also saying, well, they criminalized a speech that would criticize the government. Think of what we experienced here in COVID. And obviously, when uh, Elon Musk took over Twitter, this became exposed that our federal government was involved in instructing big tech people like Twitter and, uh, and then Facebook and I forget who all else. But a number of those big tech platforms were being controlled by the federal government as to what they could allow to be published on their platform. And anything that the federal government did not want punished, you didn't uh, publish those, you didn't want to have anything published about the fact that face masks don't work. They don't prevent infection and uh, they're not helpful to you. I mean, we now know that the scientific evidence is clear. Face masks, masks do not work and, and that's abundantly clear. But the federal government was clearly involved in censorship, but they kind of were doing it in a backhanded way, requiring these platforms to do the censoring for them, which is really nefarious, underhanded, because if anybody should be seeking to fulfill uh, the intent of the First Amendment, it should be our federal government. That is, they should never do anything that uh, attempts to create a censorship uh, and or in this case, threaten. And I assume Twitter was being threatened and uh, Facebook and the other platforms were all being threatened in some way by the federal government that if they didn't cooperate, they didn't do what the federal government was going to tell them to do. They were going to suffer for it uh, in some way that would, would significantly affect the, the business uh, environment for them. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with those those kind of uh, debates that have taken in place uh, recently as, as Twitter has been able to uh, expose the email uh, interchange between the federal government and, and its company. Yeah, and this adds a whole nother layer to everything. I don't know if uh, you're aware of this, but my show was kicked off of YouTube for a period of time for spreading, quote, medical misinformation. And I didn't even say the type of things that, that you just said. I didn't go out there and make any representations whatsoever. I followed their rules and was very conscious about doing so. All I did was read a tweet from the Surgeon General that was from a year prior that said, Serious, seriously, people, stop buying masks. They are not effective in preventing general public from catching coronavirus. But if healthcare providers can't get them to care for sick patients, it puts them and our communities at risk. That's what, word for word. The tweet from the Surgeon General of the United States is what I read. I didn't make my own representations, yet we were removed for medical misinformation and we lost our appeal. Now, when this is all happening, you had a lot of people reaching out to us saying, hey, you should sue them. This is the First Amendment problem. And my response, being perfectly honest with people, was I don't think this is a First Amendment problem because this is not the government acting here. You need a government actor in order for the First Amendment to kick in. Now, I do think that there are other legal theories in which they could be sued. If if you make your own rules and don't follow your own internal rules, your own terms, then you've got a quasi-contractual sort of violation there you gotta that that kind of a legal argument that we could have made if we wanted to sue them under those circumstances but it wasn't a first amendment claim now with what you're mentioning with these revelations coming to light there absolutely is government involvement 
and the government can't uh, act as the puppeteer, so to speak, (laughs) and have somebody else carry out their dirty work. That's a government action. It's really akin to they got these cases in terms of uh, the Fourth Amendment where the government has somebody else who is not a government employee, right? So somebody who's not a law enforcement officer uh, perform an unlawful search or something of that nature. You can't have that happen. That's still a violation of the Fourth Amendment the courts have held because the government behind it, they're using somebody else by proxy in order to commit this constitutional violation. So I think it's a whole different ballgame with these revelations that were being hidden. So does some of this really fall into the prior restraint kind of category that, I mean, so Facebook can see your post and immediately take it down is what I understood was often happening that, you know, before, in other words, it had to go through a censorship process before it was actually even allowed to be posted. And so they would eliminate it before anybody actually saw it. Sure. Absolutely. Phil, your thoughts on on that whole debacle? I, I wondered uh, in your situation, your censorship uh, uh, situation, Mike, whether or not the the concept of conspiracy is involved here, because clearly the actions being taken uh, by whoever it was, you know, one of these these firms, uh, they were being coerced apparently by the federal government. Yeah, if they were acting in uh, in concert in order to achieve that goal. And certainly there's all kinds of legal theories, conspiracy, you hear of accomplice liability, right? That sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, But the bottom line is if they're acting at the direction of the government, you can't evade those constitutional protections just because you are not the government. Yeah. And so would a a case, would it be directed to a particular department of the federal government or would it go after the individuals? Because obviously these email threads that uh, Elon Musk has brought to light, these email threads directly lead us to actors on the on the government side that we're communicating with uh, Twitter and and telling Twitter what to do. So there are individuals. So would a lawsuit focus on them or would it just focus on, on their whole, whole whole department that was involved? You'd want to f- try to focus on the government. Now, the problem is that you've got all kinds of immunity protections built in. You avoid that with constitutional type claims. Uh, you have to show that there's a decision maker who is involved in uh, these kinds of policies and procedures taking place. Uh, but But ultimately, you want to go after the government. You don't want to go after the individual for two reasons. Number one, (laughs) anybody who's litigating uh, civilly for a living on the plaintiff's side, uh, you got to make a living. And the the government's the deep pocket. That's why Mm -hmm. the government gets sued. But from a principled standpoint, if you get rid of one or two of these bad actors and they're doing so at the direction of their superiors, well, they're just going to be replaced by another minion and it's going to continue. The government's not going to learn their lesson if they're not on the hook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate that Elon Musk has fired a whole level of uh, uh, top level employees there at Twitter who were approving this and saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to we're going to cooperate with whatever the federal government tells us regarding censorship. So I appreciate it. on his end. There has been some discipline of uh employees on the Twitter side of it. But I, I hope that somebody and I never had a Twitter account, so I wouldn't be part of any plaintiff here. But I would hope that a class group could come together, class action, perhaps, or something that would uh, sue the federal government over these violations that are clearly been revealed now. 
Uh, Mike, what about the uh, National Federation of uh, Independent Business versus Sibelius? Uh, how should that have been handled, or was it handled properly? Uh, uh, obviously, Sibelius was the uh, uh, the head of the Department of, of Health and Human Services, uh, but uh, was she being sued individually or as a in her capacity as uh, the the uh, secretary of, of health and human services? And in in that case, she was taking orders from Obama. Yeah, so should he have been sued? I, I got to admit, I don't know the ins and outs of that case. Typically, when you do have these kinds of lawsuits, it, it is in their official capacity. Um, but I, I'll I'll take a look at that case again. I'll get back with you. Thank you. And all of this really raises the question, how do we hold our federal government accountable to the Constitution that they all swear to uphold? Now, now we know that there is an ultimate day of accountability coming for each and every federal official and federal worker that swears an oath to uphold the Constitution. There is a judgment day coming, the great white throne judgment, where they will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and their entire life and every action in their life will be reviewed in his perfect courtroom. And there will be no escaping. There'll be no hiding. Every detail will be exposed there. And it will be exposed that they clearly swore an oath to uphold and abide by and and follow the First Amendment. And then it will also be exposed even more than Elon Musk has been able to expose. It will also be exposed exactly how they violated that oath of office they swore. And so for some, no doubt there's going to be hell to pay if they do not repent of their sins come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ before the day that they draw their last breath. So that's, you know, we know that ultimate day of judgment is coming, but uh, we wish for justice in this world as well. So, um, you know, what do we, the people, need to do to bring about that? Because other than if we were a plaintiff and, you know, we begin a a federal lawsuit, is there something we could do in terms of our Congress critters and and, uh, getting them to act? I don't know. What's your thoughts? Well, I have some reservations about having Congress act. (laughs) I mean, uh, for for my part, they seem to be a bunch of rascals, but uh, there are some exceptions, I'm sure. Um, to me, I think the starter point here is uh, we want legitimate law to dictate, not judges. Okay, how do judges get involved? They get involved because maybe the law is really poorly written. And let's look at the Constitution. It's not a perfect document. I mean, we wouldn't have many of these these uh, cases if it weren't for the fact that there were limitations, gray areas, and all the holes, if you will. Uh, and let's look at the 14th uh, Amendment conflict with the First Amendment. You know, that creates a vast opportunity for interpretation uh, by the federal courts. So ultimately, that legislation uh, turns into, uh, or that those opinions turn into legislation from the bench. So the answer is we've got to be a little bit more active, I think, about amending our Constitution uh, and, and looking at the wording. I mean, we, could, we know what the intent is of the, of the citizenry. We know that it, it wants to have uh, uh, freedom of speech and so forth and so on, uh, freedom of, of, of religion and all the rest of it. There's no need to uh, eliminate the first five freedoms, which are incorporated in the, the First Amendment. Uh, that that should always uh, 
that should always hold. But we need to to write an amendment that cleans up this this due process nonsense, this stretched link between the Fourteenth Amendment and certain amendments in the Bill of Rights and so forth. That's not that's really poor poorly written law. The worse the laws are written, the more court intervention you're going to have because there's going to be more room for disagreement as to what the legislation actually means. I think that's the biggest problem that we have today. And one of the problems with case law is that you could end up with it being overruled shortly thereafter, right? It's exactly the topic of discussion for what we've spoken about for the last several weeks. And it's a situation where you can know exactly what the law says, but not know what it means from month to month or year to year unless you stay up on what the courts have said about it. So I guess the question is then how should those people who violated the First Amendment in in the Twitter example, and I'm sure there's a whole host of that in YouTube as well, you know, your your uh, experience on the user end of that is probably something that the uh, there were government officials behind the scenes instructing YouTube what to do, just as they were instructing Twitter and probably Facebook and all the other major platforms. How do we hold these people accountable? How do, how do we punish them for violating the Constitution that our whole purpose in putting our federal government into place is that the federal government would protect our God-given right, in this case, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, uh, and so on. I mean, what what way can we hold them accountable now? Well, one way that we can hold them accountable is to take uh, the Roberts decision, uh, the Roberts opinion, uh, as a, a guideline. And that that is, um, instead of finding them, tax them. Hmm. Uh, in what what specific way? <laughs> tax them well, for every if, violation, or? <laughs> well, uh, actually, what I'm talking about is that uh, uh, you may recall that in the Roberts decision uh, that uh, he had indicated that Congress really didn't know what they were doing when they they wrote all uh, about all of these fines for not complying with the individual mandate. What they really meant was that uh, these individuals who were violating. Uh, would be exposed to not fine, which the legislation stated many, many times, uh, not fines, but taxes. And so based upon the fact that these were taxes, actually, the federal government had the, the power to tax, and therefore, the whole thing was constitutional. <laughs> Hello? Is there anybody up there? You know? <laughs> uh, and so maybe we could uh, figure out a, a scheme by which federal employees, when they violate the First Amendment, you know, maybe they lose a percentage of their, well, maybe, maybe their pension. That might be a good, a good thing to, uh, you know, uh, chunk away at them because maybe they'll pay attention because I know many of them are very focused on their pension and they're working for their pension. Ultimately, if their pension's going to be threatened and when they violate the law, maybe they'll sit up and, uh, and take notice. Maybe they'll behave and actually obey the Constitution. That's, I think, our problem. How do we force our federal government to obey uh, the Constitution. I, I love your idea, and perhaps I'm willing now to back off of my suggestion in these cases, which is to draw and quarter them on the uh, the wall. <laughs> yeah, I think drawing and quartering was uh, outlawed by the Eighth Amendment uh, as part of the purpose uh, not to allow uh, torturing, but certainly in uh, medieval England, well, even even up at the time of uh, uh, King George III, drawing and quartering was not unknown, and uh, tortur- 
torturing someone to death, uh, disemboweling them while they were still alive, by the way, you know, doing a surgery and taking and burning their intestines and so forth on the fire in front of their very eyes as they're bleeding to death, literally. And uh, <laughs> that's it was uh, we've decided that that was not the best way to treat even these uh, egregious violations that, that have been done by our federal employees. You know, you, you could treat these things comically, but really you're on to something there, Pastor David, and that is that uh, if you look through the, the sanctions that are incorporated in the Constitution for people violating, federal officials violating their, their oaths of office, there's nothing, absolutely nothing. And that is the major, one of the major limitations of the Constitution of the United States. And if we don't have punishment powers against uh, these elected officials and their minions, those who are, you know, serving in the departments that the elected officials are uh, overseeing, the, the uh, executive branch and so on, if they can get away with all kinds of crimes, uh, well, we lose our liberties. Um, I mean, just look at the list of crimes that uh, uh, the Biden crime family have been involved in and, and the laptop that, uh, that, you know, shows criminality and uh, corruption uh, just at an egregious level with Ukraine and China and all and on it goes. But uh, oh, so far, the Biden crime family is getting away with it. And we'll see if the current attempt to uh, uh, begin, the, even just begin an investigation of Hunter Biden, if that even gets anywhere, that's already being opposed and uh, being said, oh, no, no, we, we don't need to investigate this. And oh, oh, the laptop was uh, gained illegally in spite of the fact the contract with the, um, the repair shop that Biden left it with said if he didn't pick it up after 90 days, it became property of of that repair shop, which means it was property of the owner of the repair shop because Biden didn't pick it up in 90 days. And therefore, what was done was the decision of the property owner, uh, not of uh, Hunter Biden. So anyway, that, that's an example of where, where this goes today with the criminality of those in, in our federal government. Have you noticed the uh, the size of the, the stack of documents that impacts the individual? Uh, all of the, the things that the individual can do to, to break the law. What is it? Something like two stories high, if you look at the Federal Register. Uh, look at that and then look at the amount of, of uh, space that is dedicated in the Constitution of the United States to really sanctioning uh, those officials who violate their oaths of office. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, there's no equity here at all. And we know that uh, impeachment has been tried, you know, a handful of times in terms of the president, and no president has ever been removed by impeachment. There have been a few judges removed, uh, but uh, it seems to be what uh, Thomas Jefferson called it, a scarecrow, you know, sitting out there in the field, scaring us maybe, but really <laughs> has no teeth and no effect because uh, the impeachment process appears not to make any difference in terms of uh, the activity of those in office who basically do whatever they please. And as long as they can uh, have the, the uh, press on their side running propaganda campaigns on their behalf, they can get away with virtually anything they want to in violation of our Constitution. Impeachment so, is really, when you think of it, great theater, though. We don't want yeah, to eliminate oh, it. Is. <laughs> yes. And it, it makes an oppression in the minds of the, the public. Uh, but we do, I agree with you, Phil, we do need stronger tools to rein in what is clearly an out-of-control federal government. But that begins with we the people. You see, if we the people all knew the constitutional standards so clearly and spoke of it with one another so uh, uh, vigorously, then uh, that public sentiment would be such that, wait a minute, these people are lawbreakers. 
years. We don't have a federal government. We have a federal mafia, as some have, have called it. And so if the populace were up in arms about this because they understood the standard and understood the standard was being violated, then I believe that public opinion could be used to rein in uh, the out-of-control federal government. Well, that's why we, the people, uh, the Constitution matters, exists. We exist to help train the American people in the founder's view of law and government. There is a creator God. Our rights come from him. And the only purpose of human civil government is to protect those God-given rights.